0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. You know, during times of tumult and stress, I crave perspective more than anything else. It helps give structure to chaos. And it also helps me feel less alone to know that others may have traveled a similar, if not exactly the same path. So I got a big dose of perspective last weekend in a front page story written by The Washington Post's premier political reporter Dan Balls titled, America was unprepared for a major crisis again. It was an insightful look not just at the mistakes made by this administration in dealing with COVID-19, but he also noted that, quote, repeated crises have shown that government is rarely, if ever, fully prepared. And so I reached out this week to a couple of people who were highlighted in that story who have faced such circumstances.
2: This is Andy Card, I had the privilege of being Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, George W. Bush, the Secretary of Transportation to George H.W. Bush, and served Presidents Reagan, Bush, and Bush.
3: My name is Kathleen Sebelius. I'm the former Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services and the former governor of the great state of Kansas.
1: Kathleen Sebelius served in the Obama administration as Health and Human Services Secretary during the H1N1 flu epidemic of 2009, and Andy Card, a Secretary of Transportation and the Point Person, for dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew in the first Bush administration. Card also served as Chief of Staff in the second Bush administration during 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. Both acknowledge the challenge facing the country today is of unprecedented scope. I started off our conversation by asking them to respond to this quote from former Pennsylvania governor and the country's first Department of Homeland Security secretary Tom Ridge from that same Washington Post story. He said, I've often wondered if democracy writ large is designed to be responsive rather than preemptive.
3: So I was in an administration where we had three government shutdowns. It was almost impossible to pass an HHS budget. We worked on continuing resolutions, which in state government don't exist. And the federal government is a way of just kicking the can down the road. And you're literally conscripted to last year's budget. So there is no new money. And to say to Congress, it's important to tuck this money aside for what may or may not ever happen. It's important for the government to step up and Promise the pharmaceutical industry that they will buy medications. If you make the medications, uh, we will buy them and we may not ever need or use them. That's a very difficult conversation. It's a lot easier in many ways to get the government to promptly react when something happens, whether it's a disaster, man-made or pathogen, you know, to step up and provide resources as opposed to having those resources available in a stockpile in a medication fund in wherever that may or may not be used. That's that's tough to do in government. It's tough to do in state government. It's very tough to do at the federal level.
2: The other practical reality is the states are sovereign and governors have to request aid. The federal government can't preemptively give it. Uh, They can threaten to do it, and in some bizarre instances do it, but it's usually over the objections of the lawyers, especially at the Defense Department. Members who serve in the military under the president's command cannot exercise police powers. And governors have the National Guard, and when a governor requests assistance and said, I'd like the military to come, but I want them to be under my command, which is what happened during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, The the Defense Department lawyers appropriately say, no, our soldiers took an oath to follow the command of the commander-in-chief. It's not the same as the National Guard. And we cannot exercise police powers unless there is a declared insurrection. And disasters are seldom insurrections. In
1: a moment of crisis, the actions of our leaders are almost always under microscope, but there can also be tension within the team. And when so much is unknown, leaders can get conflicting advice even from people they
2: trust. H1N1 is widespread and could easily get much worse. Response plans have been put in place across all levels of government.
3: A chance to get the
1: hard-to-find H1N1 vaccine produced a polite stampede of parents and not-so-happy children.
2: Six deaths in this country now linked to swine flu.
1: Swine flu seems to be spreading at a great rate.
2: State and local governments on the front lines to make antiviral medications and vaccines available and be ready to take whatever steps are necessary to support the health care system.
3: President Obama was very, very clear that he would follow the science. And there were lots of debates and screaming matches and um, various uh Exercise folks who felt very strongly that he needed to take very tough action from the get-go and do things like shut down all the schools in America or, you know, make presidential edicts. At one point, we had one member of the White House describe in graphic detail that, you know, the last thing this president would want is bodies up and down Pennsylvania Avenue and children being carted out of their homes, dead and piled on carts, and that would be the end of this term in office. President Obama just said, we we got to follow the science. And that kind of ended the debates and the arguments. But there was no question that people were very frightened, and people were very frightened at every point along the way. Um, and, you know, we we've got some situations coming up, Amy, that are going to be very tricky. I mean, people right now are now in a kind of food fight over protective equipment. And I've really never seen anything like this. I can't, I'm very close to our current governor who continues to make requests of the federal government and none of the requests have come to Kansas that she's made of FEMA. But they're out there trying to bid for equipment against big states, against hospital systems, against other, I mean, that kind of exercise is, is pretty unknown to me. I've not seen it happen before. But once we get a vaccine, which we hope will be within a year to 18 months, the vaccine will not be available all at the same time. We will not have a situation where everybody can get vaccinated on day one. So unless we have some kind of equitable and reasonable and transparent distribution system that people actually have faith in or believe in, we're going to be in a world of hurt as this thing goes on.
2: Governor and Secretary Sibelius described it exactly right. The allocation of resources becomes a greater challenge the greater the magnitude of the disaster. And where resources are allocated, you never satisfy everyone. And those are the tough decisions. So I would say that presidents and cabinet members have to make decisions based on science and kind of the the best expertise you can get. They should try not to make them based on emotion. However, the emotions will be very, very strong from almost everyone, including those who may not have the critical need at the critical time. And so you don't get to manage expectations the way you you do in most other instances. This is a, it's a big challenge. That's why I would focus on dealing with what does the science say? What do the experts say in the current challenge how do you uh, flatten the curve where it is most steep right now so you focus on the hot spots and then you, you try to have everybody in the whole country working to flatten everybody's curve. But you have to start with New York or Washington State or New Orleans or wherever the challenges are. But the people who are in areas that have not had the steep climb in death rates, uh, I used to say when I was working at the White House, every staffer should remember, if we think that we're, we're happy because the unemployment rate is only 3.2%. Remember, if you're the one unemployed, it's 100%. You can't make every decision based on the overall number without being cognizant that there are people that will say, but I'm hurting right now really badly, and I need help now personally and leaders have to make the tough decision, no, we have to start with New York and we'll get to you later on. But it should always be done with empathy and recognizing that if you are the one unemployed, the unemployment rate is 100%. Andrew here, Our hurricane which continues to strengthen. Perhaps the most destructive natural disaster in our history. One of the greatest concerns for hurricane forecasters and emergency management personnel is how to evacuate hundreds of thousands of people on short notice. Those who aren't
1: evacuating are stocking up on emergency supplies in anticipation of a long, bumpy ride.
4: CentroVias just outside Florida City
2: is devastated. They need food. They painted this on their roof to attract some sort of attention because they haven't seen any relief trucks this far south. All of us are in this for the long haul. Being on the ground made a huge difference, and I tried to encourage the governor and and others to come to see the disaster, to understand it. I remember Governor Lawton Childs, we were trying to get him to ask for help, and literally he said, all I need is six water buffaloes for the National Guard, and those are just water tanks. And I said to the governor, I said, Governor, you need a lot more than that. You want all the help you can get. And he was resistant. But when he came down to the area and surveyed it, he acknowledged that it was greater than he had thought. And he did make a blanket request. But those are some of the practical concerns. It's really... if leadership is cool, calm, and collected in speaking the truth, uh, it, it doesn't mean they can't be optimistic. It, it, it also doesn't mean they have to be pessimistic, but you should speak the truth and demonstrate how you think you'll be able to manage through this crisis and what you're doing to manage through it, and be flexible and motivating to the people that have to carry out the orders. I did find that the Federal Emergency Management Agency was afraid to act many times because they thought they might be violating the regulations. And some of the regulations would say, if you want to apply for assistance, you have to bring all of this paperwork with you. And I remember saying, they don't have the paperwork, but our rules say they must provide this paperwork. And I said, everything in their home was blown away. They have no paperwork. Some of them may not even have their IDs with them. And so I actually took the staff and I said, we're going to go stand in line like everybody else and see what it means to apply for aid and understand the questions that they're asking. And you're going to go down there with the information you have and see if you qualify for aid. And see what they go through. And there was tremendous resistance to do that. But then it changed dramatically how FEMA was functioning. And I actually said to a few FEMA workers when they were saying, if we do this, Congress will be mad and will be called before Congress and have to testify why we did this. And I said, you can blame me.
1: That was in 1992. Kathleen Sebelius, you, now in 2009, life is a little bit different. Obviously, we have social media at that time and the cable news infrastructure. And now, 10 years later, it's even more intensive. So you you get bombarded even more quickly with critics, almost instantaneously, who have their own platforms. So how how do you respond in real time to what is going on in this this ecosystem of media and social
3: media. You will always have second-guessers, and now the second-guessers are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and challenging everything that you're doing. The only thing that I know to do, um, and whether it was a disaster that we dealt with in Kansas when entire cities were wiped out with tornadoes or at HHS dealing with either a natural disaster or again, H1N1 is tell people what you know, tell them what you don't know on a regular basis, but that you are learning every day, repeat it, show compassion on a regular basis, understanding what they're going through, how frightened they are, what's happening, that you hear that, that you're working on that and what you can do to help solve it. It's very difficult when people hear very mixed messages. So I think it's very important that people understand where the science is going, what the science says, particularly in a health crisis like this, that it really isn't a debate, that people will learn more as we go through COVID-19, they learn more about coronavirus, they will give us updated information as they learn it but there is a science and that's really what we have to follow
1: Kathleen Sebelius and Andy Card I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today I really appreciate it
2: thank you Amy and good to be with you Kathleen
3: nice to be with you Andy and Amy thank you very much and stay safe everybody
1: yes you too Leon Panetta has served at all levels of leadership. He was the U.S. Representative from California from the late 70s to the early 90s, the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, then White House Chief of Staff to President Clinton. During the Obama administration, he served as the Director of the CIA and Secretary of Defense. So Secretary Panetta can appreciate better than most the political challenges to preparedness, realities of running for re-election, budgets, and bandwidth. I asked him to reflect on those challenges over the course of his career.
4: There has been uh, an attitude that has developed, uh, you know, over the last uh, almost 20 years or more, where there has been a hesitancy to uh, confront bad news uh, or to in any way tell the American people that uh, they are going to have to sacrifice. And so uh, there's been a sense that, uh, you know, for example, that we could we could go to war uh, and, uh, you know, have uh, some in our society fight that war. Others can uh, would not have to fight it, uh, that we could have wars and not have to pay for it, uh, that we could uh, borrow money instead of uh, having to uh, exercise any kind of fiscal discipline. Uh, you know, there's just been a, a general sense that uh, rather than confronting the American people with the real facts and with the threats, uh, not not to Uh, put fear into the American people, but to make them understand the truth of the situation that we're confronting. Because there's been a lack of leadership to do that, I think so often we are unprepared for the crises that we have to confront.
1: I want to follow up with that by asking you whether you think, looking at where the public has gone, on asking them to make some amazing sacrifices, sheltering in place, we have just an unprecedented number of people who've lost their jobs, who may never get those jobs back, who are losing income. It seems though that the public has, until this point, been willing to make those sacrifices. So, what does that tell
4: you? Well, it tells all of us a great deal about uh, the fundamental spirit of the American people. Look, I you know I was uh, I was a small boy uh, during World War II, uh, and uh, even as a small boy. Uh, I saw uh, the sense of sacrifice uh, by all citizens, uh, not those that not just those that went to war uh, and fought and died for this country, but uh you know citizens at home who were you know air raid wardens who were uh, operating on rationing, who were doing all of the things that needed to be done to make sure that we supported uh, the war effort uh, and uh now Uh, almost 75 years later uh, as we confront probably the most serious crisis that we've confronted since World War II. I think the reality is the American people understand that uh, in many ways, the responsibility lies with them to take the the actions necessary in order to make sure that we do what's right uh, to try to prevent uh, this coronavirus uh, from uh, continuing to uh, impact uh, on uh, the people of this country, and for that matter, the people of the world. The other
1: issue I wanted to raise with you is this question about governing in a time of incredible polarization. This isn't new. You've been around through it. But here we are in this once-in-a-lifetime crisis. And if you log on to Twitter or you watch cable, you see that this polarization, this negative partisanship is a strong as ever alive and well and so i wanted to get you to weigh in on just what the challenge of governing in a time like time like this
4: i've often said that uh, you know in my 50 years of uh, public life i've seen washington at its best and uh, i've seen washington at its worst i mean the good news is i've seen washington work i've seen uh, the leadership of uh, whether democratic or republican presidents working with uh, bipartisan leadership in the congress Uh, I had leadership in the House, uh, Tip O'Neill, who was a Democrat's Democrat, uh, got along very well with Bob Michael, who was the minority leader, uh, and uh, we worked together on a bipartisan basis uh, under presidents of both parties. That's how democracy is supposed to function. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how we govern, uh, is through the ability to work together and find consensus. Uh, unfortunately, I've seen Washington at its worst. I've seen it uh, bitterly divided, uh, as it is now, very partisan, very dysfunctional, because uh, neither neither party leaders want to really sit down uh, and work through uh, the crises that this country confronts. And so, you know, we've had basically gridlock on so many issues, from immigration to infrastructure to health care, uh, and, and now even on uh, this coronavirus, although there's been some consensus on the initial package, there's still divisions that, uh, that you sense between the parties uh, on trying to decide the right course of action. This is a time, very frankly, when both parties have to put aside uh, the partisanship, the attacks, uh, the counterattacks, and just understand that the fundamental interest of the country is at stake and that both have to work together uh, to find the answers to the situation. This is a time when we need governing. We do not need gridlock and we do not need partisanship.
1: So how optimistic are you that this could actually happen? I mean, we're just at the start of this, uh, unfortunately, very deep crisis.
4: Amy, I I teach the students at our Panetta Institute that uh, in a democracy we govern either by leadership or by crisis. Uh, if leadership is there and willing to take the risks that are associated with leadership, we can, we can confront crisis, we can deal with crisis. But if leadership is not there, then we are going to govern by crisis. And very frankly, for the last uh, number of years, we have largely been governing by crisis. And so the real fundamental question is going to be whether leadership is willing to step forward, put aside these partisan threats that uh, have been used for so long, and recognize that as leaders they have an obligation to the american people to find solutions those solutions may not always please their particular party base but if those solutions are the right ones and they can arrive at consensus then i think the american people will respect uh... the leadership of this country for doing what's right uh, but it takes risks it takes a willingness to take a risk Uh, But that's what leadership is all about.
1: Secretary Panetta, thank you again so much for doing this. Really appreciate your perspective.
4: Good. Nice to be with you, Amy.
1: We've been talking all about leadership and governing during a crisis. But what about solutions? Are there ways that the United States could better prepare for something like a pandemic?
5: Our commission looks at biodefense as being composed of a whole spectrum of activities that go from prevention and deterrence through preparedness and surveillance and then on to response recovery and mitigation.
1: That's Dr. Asha George, Executive Director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense
5: you know, depending on the source, be it naturally occurring or intentionally introduced or accidentally released, different ones of, you know, elements of that that spectrum actually come into play. And I would say amongst them all, there's a core set of activities that should be common amongst all of them. But when it comes to a naturally occurring disease and a pandemic in, in particular, actually, whether it's naturally occurring or not, there's a whole requirement for Thank sure domestic capacity and the ability to respond in such a way as to control the spread of the disease and to make sure that we can treat the people who do come become ill with it that we can develop the vaccines we need and so forth those systems are composed of both the scientific enterprise and the healthcare slash public health enterprise here in in the nation and you've seen what's happened with both of those they don't necessarily get the funding that they need from the federal government the business side of this for industry isn't particularly great because the federal government winds up being the only customer for for many of the things that they might need to put out and then on the public health side you know the public health uh community has seen fewer and fewer dollars coming to them from the federal government and then of course healthcare. The healthcare system seems to be doing pretty well because so much of it is privatized. But but when you look at uh, what they have to deal with, they have to optimize their business practices. So they're only looking at the regular disease and regular injuries and illness that come in through the door on a frequent basis. And optimizing to deal with that. They are not anywhere close to having systems in place that would allow for these huge surges in cases that occur with a pandemic. And they, in turn, then are looking to the federal government to help them when a pandemic does occur. But there are no or few systems in place to assist.
1: It also seems like our response to something that is a threat from another country, in other words, okay, we need to protect our country from somebody uh, who has unleashed a weapon, would maybe go farther in sort of bringing all the resources together more quickly than the way that this Pandemic played out.
5: You're absolutely right. if somebody if somebody released smallpox somewhere else in the world, or some other uh, biological agent that we knew had to be um, part of a biological weapon we would immediately swing into action, assuming that the United States would be under attack as well at some point. Um, And if not under attack, then certainly having to deal with smallpox, because it would just spread like wildfire throughout
1: the world. Uh, But that's not what happened here. In looking at the recommendations that you all made back in 2015, is there anything that you look at now and think, boy, if that had been in place today, could have made a fundamental difference in mitigating the spread of this disease.
5: Yes, absolutely. I think I think there are a few. Um, certainly our recommendation about establishing a stratified hospital system here in the United States, we really called for all hospitals to be, capable of treating any sort of disease that might come by like this uh, to some extent and then being able to refer those patients up you know up the chain uh, as we would with with our trauma system here in the United States um, if we had done that if the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid systems had agreed that preparedness was important and had decided well in advance years ago that they would reimburse for um, the treatment that is associated with a pandemic or a biological attack. If the federal government had agreed to move parts of the stockpile and actually put more into the stockpile, that would have helped a lot. We called for the CDC and OSHA, both agencies, to work together in advance to determine at least what questions you need to ask at the beginning of a pandemic like this to answer and then enable both agencies to issue guidance that would help our healthcare workers, our public health workers, our first responders, and so forth, to be able to deal with a disease that's coming into our communities um, and understand what exactly to do. Uh, With all of those examples that I just gave you, all of those things could have been addressed years ago and they were not. And so now we're in the unfortunate position here in the country and elsewhere throughout the world where we're trying to plan, we're trying to prepare, and we're trying to respond
1: all at the same time. How optimistic are you, again, that maybe at the end of this, and hopefully that will be soon, that the lessons that we have learned from this awful experience will indeed help us for something, even hopefully nothing as terrible as this, but another crisis that involves our our health. I'm
5: cautiously optimistic and realistically optimistic. You know, after we have a large scale event like this of, of any sort, especially one that affects our national security, uh, we We don't have incredibly short memories. People don't just shut off and and move on to the next thing right away. I think we have a window after this is over, probably six months, maybe to a year, during which this will be fresh in our memories and Congress will take some action. The next administration will take a lot of action and it will be incumbent on us as, you know, citizens to really push for, for the changes we need in order to better prepare ourselves for the next event. I actually think uh, it would be a huge mistake for everybody to say, well, well, You know, these events only seem to occur every once in 100 years or so, and so we got through this one and we'll just punt. We've seen more and more of these biological events, whether they're naturally occurring or not, occur much more frequently than we have seen, you know, in centuries ago uh, or even decades ago. Uh, part of it has to do with globalization. Part of it has to do with, you know, the way we're managing the environment, and part of it, frankly, is just that this is the nature of viruses um, and other microorganisms. They mutate, and so they're getting around all of our defenses. We have to be prepared, and I think it would be, it would be nice if our government and the private sector decided to plan for the next event such that it was going to occur in another six months um, or six months after COVID-19 sort of winds itself up. I don't know if we'll get that far, but I'm hoping that in that six months, at least six months to a year, that we'll, we'll be able to evoke some change.
1: Well, Dr. Asha George, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me about this.
5: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: On the front lines in this fight against the pandemic are state and local leaders. But they aren't getting on TV. None of them are going to get glowing profiles written about them in national newspapers. And that's why every week we want to check in with local mayors to hear the challenges that they're facing. This week I called up Marco McClendon. And I'm the
0: mayor of West Memphis, Arkansas.
1: A city of less than 30,000 people that sits directly across the Mississippi River from Memphis, Tennessee.
0: Well, COVID nineteen is definitely having a major impact. One of the things that they have done it has closed down vital jobs that the people of this community depends on, and they happen to go to the unemployment claim benefits, and they're again just a partial amount of what they was making, and that brings a lot of difficulty on people with their income, as well as you know, West Memphis is in a very unique situation. We in Arkansas, but we sit right here in the Memphis MSA. Uh, 1.4 million people. And what, you know, goes on in our neighbor county definitely affect us right across the bridge. Well,
1: talk to us a little bit about what you do as mayor in a moment like this. We know, for example, that Arkansas is one of the few states that doesn't have a statewide stay-at-home order. Governor Hutchison has not ordered one. But you are doing some of your own things in the city, for example, putting a curfew in place. So how are decisions that are being made by the governor of Arkansas impacting what you do or not do in your own city?
0: Well, one of the things I've done, I have put in place a, a emergency curfew from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And one of the things I'm so happy about this situation is that most of our retailers, all of our businesses, they are closed at that time. So the only thing that's pretty much open in West is out to nine may be some industries that have second and third shift as well as our hospital for anyone that's needing emergency emergency care. But also what I've done from 5 a.m. to nine p.m. I had put in place a stay put, uh, voluntary, necessary order. If you have to go back grocery, if you have to take a walk and exercise, if you need to do something, please do it and come back home.
1: How have people in your community responded to that?
0: I've been very encouraged because a lot of them have told me, have called this office and said, this is what we should have been doing. The state should have done it a long time ago. And they want to make sure that um, we're doing everything to keep them safe. I have had a lot of mails from our state asking for the, the emergency ordinance that I have put in place for the city. Uh, and everyone's been very encouraging you know, about this because, I mean, this is a real crisis that we have never seen for our city or our nation.
1: As you pointed out, though, you also sit right there on the Mississippi River. You get on a bridge and you're in Memphis, which is a very big city. What does that mean for your town? I mean, you have people coming and going constantly. How can you feel comfortable or confident that you know what's coming in and out of your city at any moment?
0: Let me bring this home for you, Miss Walter. Actually, West Memphis is closer to downtown Memphis than Memphis is close to downtown Memphis. We have this big river crossing where actually we can walk to Memphis and Memphis can walk to West Memphis. Then we have two major interstates, I-40 and I-55, which in West Memphis only meets nowhere else in the United States where you have over 70,000 vehicles that's coming through our city from north, east, south, to west at any given time during the day here in West Memphis. So, definitely it has been definitely hard because we have a lot of people that go to Memphis as well as downtown Memphis has become more residential. So it's easier and quicker for Memphis to come to West Memphis and shop than going for the in Memphis to help to shop.
1: Can you walk us through what your day-to-day life is like in this era of COVID?
0: It have gotten harder because, well, first of all, West Memphis was a city that was on the rise in my first year, which was 19. We created over 1,900 new jobs. We had Carvana that come to West Memphis. Southland was building a 21-story hotel. Coca-Cola, so many different industries was coming. So it was coming. So it was a lot going on in restaurants, Chick-fil-A. Everything was coming. Then this COVID-19 hit. And through the grace of God, we are still having things to happen. Well, we had over $600 million of capital investment within our city. And it seemed like overnight, everything just stopped. And I'm out encouraging people, making sure we enforce the uh, CDC guidelines of uh, social distancing to make sure that we can be a city that gets past this pandemic. And on a daily basis, I'm meet with health care professionals to make sure that we move forward.
1: I was looking at the coverage of your city over this last month, and I what I noticed was that where this issue really started in West Memphis or at least where you all think it started was with a funeral.
0: It was a funeral here in West Memphis that had over 300 individuals at that funeral. But when I did my research on the funeral, my police department went by there. It was a funeral hall for Memphis. They brought the individual over to West Memphis because they cannot have uh, that type of funeral in the city, in the city of Memphis. So they came over here and had the funeral and actually took the body back to Memphis. And the reason why they was able to do it over here because yet our government hadn't put anything in place that prohibits that in the safer home orders or make sure that we enforce the 10 people or more through the CDC guidelines. And they came over here and actually we had five people that were diagnosed with it from that point.
1: Wow. And those were people who were staying and living in your community. So even though this was... For a person who lived in Memphis supposedly or at least was buried in Memphis the the folks in your community got the disease even if they weren't even if they weren't at the funeral
0: yeah we they you know we suffered the effects because those people stopped in West Memphis, they ate in West Memphis, and you did have some of the people. From West Memphis, that did go to the funeral as well. I just can't say all 300 was from Memphis, but the large part of them was from here. But we did have some citizens that went there because they knew who the pastor of the church was. And was a pretty big, large church that done it.
1: Right. And so this was what you're saying is they came over to West Memphis because Tennessee had a, had a rule that you couldn't have more than 10 people, but Arkansas didn't have that same rule about public gatherings?
0: Yes, ma'am. Exactly. And that's what happened.
1: Mayor Marco McClendon, I really thank you so much for taking the time and and speaking with me today.
0: I thank you for having me, too. and, And God bless this country and West Memphis as well.
2: The message of our campaign is us, not me.
1: This week, Senator Bernie Sanders ended his bid for the Democratic nomination. In many ways, it feels like a lifetime ago. But it was only about six weeks ago that Sanders looked like he was going to win it all. He carried New Hampshire. He came within a whisker of winning in Iowa and, of course, put up a huge victory in Nevada. The moderate wing of the party was divided. One-time frontrunner Joe Biden was lagging in delegates and cash. But Sanders' Nevada victory on February 22nd would be his last significant win. On February 29th, just a week later... Joe Biden scored a decisive win in South Carolina, and from that point on, the once divided Democratic electorate rallied behind the former vice president. With Biden piling up wins and delegates, there was simply no path forward for the Vermont senator.
2: So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign.
1: He leaves behind an important legacy and many disappointed supporters. This is Samantha out of Portland, Oregon.
6: This is devastating. i poured so much into his candidacy. I believed in him. He supported us.
1: He wanted to make sure we could, that our incomes matched inflation. He cared about things like that.
0: Hi, this is Savita from Greenville, South Carolina, and I am very disheartened that he has
1: dropped out because he was my only hope. More importantly, he was the only hope for my kids
5: who are first-hand voters.
2: The simple fact is Bernie Sanders represented the old school, great society, lefty, democratic party politics. And all the mainstream media did for the last six months is attack those politics and demonize them.
4: John, San Diego, California. It became very clear as Bernie Sanders has announced his ending of his presidential bid that there is no possibility that we will regain our republic in this election term. America has fallen.
1: To help us sort through that complicated legacy is Ruby Kramer, a politics reporter at BuzzFeed who's been following the Sanders campaign.
6: It looks like, holy crap, Bernie Sanders could actually win this thing. It was sort of, for lack of a better phrase, a perfect storm of elements. You had a very crowded field. So you had Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg splitting up their own sort of voters. You still had Elizabeth Warren in there. Bernie Sanders was the only person who could sort of get more than a small fraction of the field with that many people in. And then you had the entry of Michael Bloomberg the former mayor of New York, who's coming in with all this money and is basically making a huge play for the Super Tuesday states. So all of these elements mean that Bernie Sanders is the only one with the base and the loyal support to kind of edge him out above all of these other people to get first place finishes in the Iowa popular vote, New Hampshire. And then he comes into Nevada with this massive victory and all this latinx support and you're like wow he's expanding his coalition he has all these latinos he didn't have them four years ago wow no one else can do this unless the field changes overnight he's the only one who could come out of super tuesday with a delegate lead like you could see joe biden and michael bloomberg kind of splitting the vote their own vote 15 percent each in super tuesday fast forward a week two weeks michael bloomberg collapses on the debate stage elizabeth Warren just tears him apart Everybody starts coalescing behind Joe Biden after Joe Biden wins with black voters in South Carolina and very, very rapidly in the span of, I think it was 36 hours. You had all of these candidates dropping out to get behind him to literally redirect their planes to fly to a kind of go Joe Biden rally in Dallas. And then everything changed. I think what happened in that moment, which is really important to understand about Bernie and helps us understand why he stayed in the race through the last month amid this pandemic is that there was that week or that two weeks where he saw the path forward and he saw a moment where he could actually win. And so just as everybody else was reckoning with that strange moment where it was like, wow, wait, can he really do this? Bernie Sanders himself was feeling like he had this, like he could do this. And I think that was a really hard thing to let go of, especially when it came to the March contest where basically at the end of the day, more people came out to vote for Joe Biden. And Bernie Sanders could not expand beyond that base that we talked about.
1: Was it Sanders himself? Was it his message? Was it that, you know, maybe the Democratic base isn't as liberal as people think it is? Maybe there's just not an appetite for the kind of Democratic socialism that he was putting forward. So, Is there an easy answer to that question? No, there really isn't. I
6: think it's a combination of a few things. I think that his ideas are popular. I mean, we see widespread support for expanded access to health care, for a higher minimum wage. I mean, these are ideas that Bernie Sanders pushed Hillary Clinton on four years ago. You see in the exit polls that there is widespread support for those ideas, but you're not seeing a progressive candidate. And I would include Elizabeth Warren in this, too. Like, you're not seeing that broad support for that kind of progressive champion. And so I think that's a big kind of mystery for him personally. He's like, he believes, and he said this on Wednesday when he dropped out of the race, that he is winning the ideological debate, but he is not winning when it comes to people coming out to vote. And I think you could talk to a bunch of people who have worked for him and worked for him four years ago, and they might say, you know, there are things that he could have done that he didn't do in terms of reaching out and forming relationships. And, you know, I had one former advisor point to, Like he had three years in between his campaigns and he didn't do as much sort of politicking, the sort of like forming relationships with whether it's Congressional Black Caucus or lock up labor endorsements early. Like there are things that they feel like he could have done that he didn't. And part of that is that that stuff has just never come naturally to Bernie Sanders. He's not for someone who's been in Washington for 30 years. He's never been sort of like an inside game backslapper type. Politician, he doesn't do that stuff. I mean, he's a kind of like a gruff guy who borders on, you know, rude sometimes. <laughs> it's like he's not. That's not the kind of um, relationships that he likes to spend time investing in. At the end of the day, you know, everybody knew who Bernie Sanders was, right? This guy has 100% name ID, and people just didn't vote for him enough.
1: And then finally, to think about the the Bernie Sanders legacy. I think it is fair to say that, yes, issues like the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, free college, um, $15 minimum wage certainly now are on the agenda in a way they weren't before Bernie Sanders was on the scene. But can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, sort of what you think of his legacy maybe two years or four years or six years from now.
6: You know, I mean, I, I talked to one of his
1: senior advisors
6: earlier this week after the announcement, and, and he he was saying he had already gotten a call from Bernie saying, OK, when's our next meeting? What's next? And, you know, I, I don't doubt that as long as Bernie Sanders is in politics, he will be fighting. He will be pushing. I mean, this guy wakes up every day in a fight, right? Like, And I think that that will continue as long as Bernie Sanders is in politics. So I think that raises two questions. How much of that time is he going to spend fighting someone like Joe Biden or fighting the Democratic Party? And how much is he going to spend trying to work with it? And I think that that could shape the legacy and make it sort of look very different depending on how he sort of acts, not just in the next four or five months until November, but beyond. Um, and I think that one of the big questions for him too is like, when are we going to see somebody like Bernie Sanders actually win win a race in a non-blue district, right? Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Pressley. Like, these are all great examples of people who followed in Bernie Sanders' mold. But I think that you would be harder pressed to find someone who is going to deliver on the promise of what what Bernie Sanders hoped his 2020 campaign would, would be, which was dra- turning non-voters into new voters, bringing people who are usually not part of the political process into the political process, um, energizing the working class, um, including in red states where you would never think of a progressive winning. So I kind of feel like part of his legacy will be trying to answer those unanswerable questions about why exactly – He was able to build a movement, but not a winning movement.
1: Ruby Kramer, thank you so much for talking with me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. One more thought for me today about the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign. It's always hard to know just what sort of legacy any political figure will leave behind once he or she exits a presidential race. Some leave only to come back and win the nomination and presidency later on. Think Ronald Reagan or Richard Nixon. Others who held such incredible promise, like Democrat Gary Hart, fall into political obscurity. But it is clear that Sanders' time on the national stage has had some immediate impact. His agenda, specifically on health care, minimum wage, college debt continues to drive the political conversation. And his call for a more robust challenge to the status quo won't be going away either, especially as this pandemic only widens this country's gaping inequalities. For me, the biggest political lesson to take from Sanders' loss is that building coalitions still matters. A successful politician meets voters where they are, not where the candidate wants them to be. What Sanders' supporters liked so much about him was his consistency and his unwillingness to compromise to things he saw as his core principles. But politics in the end is about compromise. It doesn't mean you have to sell your soul or your values. It does mean that you can't get everything you want in order to get the voters that you do. That's all for us today. I wanna to give a big shout out to the people who made this show possible. Patricia Jacob, Amber Hall, Jay Cowett, Debbie Daughtry, David Gable and Lee Hill. And of course call us anytime at 8778 my take or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E Walter the show is at the takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. this is politics with Amy Walter on the takeaway.